In case of a nuclear attack, the protection of records is essential. If this country is to carry on its economy... Western Fringe, a podcast about Colorado's weird history. I'm your host, Heidi Beadle, and this week we are at the University of Colorado Boulder. We're following the rabbit hole after last week's episode about cattle mutilations during the 1970s, and the prevailing theories about what was behind the mutilations were satanic cults, UFOs, or a shadowy government conspiracy. Today, we're digging into the UFOs. Before we start, I first want to say that I have never seen a UFO. I have spoken with quite a few people who have claimed to have seen them. I've spent a few evenings out in the middle of nowhere looking up at the sky, but I have never myself had a close encounter. I also want to point out how ridiculously broad the subject of UFOs is. When most people talk about UFOs and UFO sightings, they mostly mean modern ones, from 1947 to today. Although... There was a rash of airship sightings in the Midwest during the late 1800s and early 1900s, and not to go all ancient aliens on you, but there are plenty of recorded accounts going back to antiquity of strange events, beings, and sightings. For the sake of brevity, thanks again to everyone who listened to the hour-and-a-half-long mutilation episode, I'm going to do my best to really keep today's episode focused on UFOs in Colorado. Also, as you'll see with the University of Colorado's report, most UFO sightings have a prosaic explanation. Those that don't, however, also do not have a satisfactory explanation. Hence the U in UFO, right? The UFO community, such that it is, is in no way any kind of monolith, and the explanations for what UFOs are varies wildly, from your stereotypical view of UFOs as being spacecraft from an extraterrestrial civilization piloted by sentient beings, to much, much more bizarre explanations. If you really want to explore the UFO phenomenon, I would highly recommend you check out the podcast The Saucer Life, which offers a broad look at the incidents and the people reporting on those incidents in UFO culture from 1947 to today. As we saw last episode with Brush Banner reporter Dane Edwards, not everything is what it seems, and the UFO community is a target-rich environment for grifters and hucksters of every stripe. As if grifters aren't enough, also muddying the waters are a number of government agencies who have been looking into the UFO phenomena since 1947, and who have, throughout the decades, lied, covered up, and introduced deliberate misinformation to plucky UFO researchers. With all of this stuff going on, it can be really hard to make sense of the wealth of information and misinformation that is out there today. That being said, my UFO guy of choice is John Keel. I will admit, as someone born and raised in the southeast U.S., I do have a soft spot in my heart for Mothman, but Keel's 1970 book, Operation Trojan Horse, is a pretty solid study of the UFO phenomenon, and as I'll talk about today, many of my findings from talking to UFO experiencers here in Colorado in the last four years align with Keel's reports in Operation Trojan Horse. 
Like any UFO researcher, Keel's conclusions are kind of controversial. He suggests UFOs and Mothmen are not extraterrestrial, but ultra-terrestrial. Some kind of interdimensional, perhaps even spiritual, in a sense, phenomenon that has been around for a while. That's just my take on it. If you ask any 10 UFO researchers, they will give you 10 different authors they think are definitive. For me... I think Keel did a pretty exhaustive study in the late 60s, and that Operation Trojan Horse still holds up today. So, without further ado, welcome to Episode 9, Fire in the Sky. episode one about Colorado's role in the Manhattan Project and its contributions to the burgeoning nuclear arms industry, we talked about what a weird year 1947 was. Not only was it the year that formally established the Truman Doctrine and the Marshall Plan and created the CIA and the National Security Council and set up the Air Force as its own branch of the military, it is also the year that Flying Saucer entered pop culture. In June 1947, you have Kenneth Arnold's widely publicized story of seeing nine flying saucers fly past Mount Rainier in Washington. Less than a month later, you have the Roswell incident, also a widely publicized incident, initially reported as a crashed and recovered flying saucer, later revealed to be a weather balloon, and even later, like in the 90s, or 2000s, revealed to be a part of Project Mogul, which used balloons to monitor Soviet nuclear tests. In pretty short order, flying saucers became a media phenomenon, and reports of UFO flaps or mass sightings with multiple witnesses seeing the same thing start making the news. The Air Force, of course, is all over this. They have Project Sign, Project Grudge, and most famously Project Blue Book to investigate the waves of UFO sightings all over the country. Early UFO hysteria hits a kind of peak in 1952, when in July, multiple white, tailless, fast-moving lights are picked up on radar and spotted by military personnel and commercial pilots over Washington, D.C., The Air Force scrambled a pair of F-94 Starfire jets to intercept the UFOs, but they disappeared once the jets closed in. When the jets ran low on fuel and returned to base, the objects returned, the tricky little buggers, for a few more hours. 
Fearing the kind of impact the panic from a mass sighting like that could have, the U.S. military and intelligence community decided to do something about it. The CIA reviewed its findings from Project Blue Book and convened a panel of experts to discuss the evidence and offer recommendations. In January 1953, the Robertson panel, headed by physicist Howard P. Robertson, met to offer conclusions on UFOs. Here is John Keel's description of the panel from Operation Trojan Horse. In January 1953, a panel of top scientists and CIA officials reviewed this evidence and rejected it. Instead of grandly announcing that flying saucers from another planet were visiting us, the panel suggested that the public be re-educated to believe that the sightings were inspired by natural phenomena, misinterpretations of known objects, and so on. The Air Force files were buttoned up, and an order was issued to forbid Air Force personnel from discussing UFO data. The move inspired the cry of UFO censorship that persists to this day. There was even a division within the government on the true nature of the phenomenon. So, the government's plan was to convince people that UFOs weren't real and what they were seeing, reporting, calling into local newspapers and police departments, and whoever would listen, was easily explainable natural phenomena. As you can imagine, that had the opposite effect of what they wanted. People were more interested in UFOs than ever, and you started seeing widespread reports of UFO contactees, or people who had witnessed UFOs land and even met the pilots of such craft. One of the most famous contactees from the 1950s was George Adamski, who claimed to have met UFO pilots from Venus and Mars and would give rise to an interesting kind of cult following we'll come back to later. The contactee stuff was all very new agey and involved space brothers who were normal humans spreading messages of peace and goodwill. You also started to see local UFO groups pop up. Would it shock you to learn that one of the earliest and most famous groups, the National Investigative Committees on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP, had strong ties to the U.S. intelligence community? More from John Keel. As part of the hype for Ruppelt, he was one of the guys from Project Blue Book, Ruppelt's 1956 book, the intelligence community in Washington, D.C. held a well-publicized symposium for four days in June 1956. Everybody attended, most of the top CIA officials, the German rocket scientists, i.e. Nazis from Operation Paperclip, who would later achieve great fame with our NASA program, and leading aviation industrialists such as William Lear of Learjets, they decided to establish a civilian UFO organization to be called the National Investigation Committees on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP. A physicist named Townsend Brown was named to head it. Charter memberships cost $100, a great deal of money in 1956. It seemed as if something was finally going to be done. Quite a who's who of UFO people, right? If you're familiar at all with UFO stuff, you might recognize the Lear name. John Lear, the son of William Lear, becomes a big figure in UFO stuff during the 80s and 90s, espousing a lot of really bizarre conspiracy theories about underground bases and alien-human hybrids. We'll talk more about that in the next episode. But Obviously, it is pretty fishy that the son of a founding member of NICAP would go on to spread wild UFO misinformation, right? 
Once again, making use of historical news clippings from Pikes Peak Library, I found a number of UFO sightings reported in the Gazette and other local papers. 1956 was a busy year, with four separate stories. In May 1956, there was something of a UFO plap, flap in Pueblo. Unidentified sky objects reported in Pueblo area. Sightings of unidentified flying objects for six successive nights near Pueblo were reported here today. The first report was made to the 4602nd Air Intelligence Service Squadron at Peterson Field here by the Pueblo Ground Observer Corps. Sergeant Gilbert Nelson, a member of the Intelligence Squadron, went to Pueblo after the reports were made to see if perhaps he could photograph the objects. What he saw, he said, was nothing official but merely his own observations from the top of the Pueblo County Courthouse. Nelson said he saw five or six objects fly over during a period of three hours. It was his personal opinion that all but one could have been birds flying at night with lights from the town reflecting on them. These were triangular in shape. One, however, was round and brighter than the rest, and it could have been that the source of light was the object itself, rather than a reflection. Nelson said the objects were visible for only five or six seconds, so great was their speed. Captain Vincent Finnerty, a member of the Air Force's Air Defense Filter Center here, said he knew of no attempt to investigate the sightings with interceptor aircraft. And then there was another interesting sighting on August 27th, in Fort Collins. Glowing saucer is sighted over Fort Collins area. A round object that glowed bright red hovered in the clear northern Colorado sky for the second time in three nights Sunday night. Some of the many townspeople who viewed the phenomenon described it as a flying saucer. It's like nothing I've ever seen before, said Bob Scott, a newsman for radio station KCOL. It definitely is not a plane or a balloon. Scott said it was visible for 37 minutes before moving slowly and silently off to the eastern horizon, where it disappeared about 10.30 p.m. Telephone switchboards at the police department, the radio station, and the newspaper office were swamped with calls. In Denver, 58 miles south of here, officials at Lowry Air Force Base said no craft from the base were operating in northern Colorado. The spokesman said they knew nothing of the object. Lowry is the headquarters for a weather balloon squadron whose glossy balloons frequently are mistaken for unidentified flying objects, both at day and night. Scott said the object glowed bright red in the center, diminishing in intensity toward the outer extremities. He said the glow was constant rather than pulsating. It couldn't have been a star, he said. It was a clear night, the stars were out, but this object was a very bright red, much larger than a star, and was moving. It looked as if it were leaving a very slight smoke trail. The very next day, the Gazette ran another story because apparently the object was sighted in Colorado Springs as well. Mysterious Object Flashes Across Peak Region Sky The mysterious object seen in Colorado skies for the last few nights, which for lack of a better name, Flying Saucer, has been applied, was seen Monday night by two Colorado Springs boy astronomers, as well as people south of Colorado Springs and by residents of Fort Collins. The theory that it may have been the planet Mars, now closest to the Earth than in many years, was disproved, for at the same time of this apparition, Mars was seen in another part of the sky.
Bill and Jim Johnson, 15 and 17-year-old sons of Mr. and Mrs. Samuel Johnson, 602 South Prospect Street, when out in their yard with a telescope observing Mars Monday night, suddenly saw the strange apparition. They described it as a big white light, more elliptical than round. It appeared to be it appeared to the south of Colorado Springs and seemed to them to be moving southeast so rapidly that in three seconds they lost sight of it. They said the object seemed low and looked to be about three feet long and two feet wide. They thought they detected a faint trail of smoke behind it. The boys had been looking at Mars and continued to observe the planet after seeing the mysterious object. Mars, they said through their telescope, looked the size of a baseball and was brown in color. They said it appeared to have markings not unlike the moon. They said they also saw, saw what appeared to be a single star separating into six points of light in a row. This seemed to be something much farther away, they said, than the flying saucer. In Boulder today, Dr. Gordon Newkirk, University of Colorado astronomer, said that a red object which appeared in the skies over northern Colorado over the weekend was not the planet Mars. Newkirk explained that the object, was, which was seen in Fort Collins at 10.42 p.m. Sunday night, was in the wrong sector of the sky and appeared too late at night to be Mars. The object, described as luminous and red and trailing vapor or smoke, was visible for 37 minutes. Newkirk also pointed out that aircraft transit the sky in a fraction of the time the Fort Collins phenomenon was observed. Lowry Air Force Base and other area air installations reportedly had no balloons nor aircraft in flight Sunday night. The sky object's visitation was observed in Fort Collins where it appeared as a round red object in the heavens to the east. There it is again, said policeman Lawrence Jolch of Fort Collins. Mrs. Eloise Stryker watched it through binoculars and down in Harmony, south of Fort Collins, Jeanette Franz said that she saw it too. Bob Scott, a newsman at radio station KCOL, said everyone who saw it plainly could plainly see Mars at the same time. Mars, at its nearest opposition to Earth, was almost directly overhead, Scott said, while the saucer floated close to the horizon to the east. Said Jolch, I could see Mars at the same time as this thing, and both were clearly visible. Scott said the object was slightly cigar-shaped and a glowing red that tapered off to a pink. He said it was seen for 37 minutes Sunday night and for 10 minutes late Monday. In 1965, the Free Press, a Colorado Springs paper I am assuming is a precursor to my beloved Indy, ran a photo of two saucer-shaped objects in Ute Pass, photographed by a Palmer High School student. I have to assume this is a hoax, but I will let you, discerning listener, be the judge of that. You can find the photo on our Twitter and Instagram. Not reported at the time, obviously, but in 1965, you had a weird incident at F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming, which is right across the border from Colorado. F.E. Warren experienced multiple sightings in July and August of 1965. Warren is a nuclear missile base, and Bob Hastings has compiled a number of military sightings of UFOs at nuclear installations using FOIA requests and testimony from veterans. Obviously, between 1953's Robertson panel and 1965, people became more interested in UFOs than ever. To combat this growing threat, the Air Force turned to the University of Colorado at Boulder, Sco buffs, right? Then to Lebanon, 
from John Keel about Edward Condon, who led the CU Boulder team's investigations into UFOs. Dr. Edward U. Condon, the physicist who headed Colorado University's Air Force Finance two-year UFO study, has been criticized because he devoted part of his time to examining the claims of the controversial contactees. He earned the undying wrath of the cultists when his final report was published in January 1969, and he stressed an anti-extraterrestrial conclusion. He asserted that his scientific teams had failed to find any evidence of extraterrestrial origin or of serious UFO censorship on the part of the government. But both of these myths have been implanted too deeply in the UFO literature to be killed off so easily. The Library of Congress's objective bibliography even had sections devoted to news management, censorship, and CIA plots. Was all of this just another government whitewash, as the cultists contend? In April 1969, Dr. Condon delivered a speech before the American Philosophical Society in Philadelphia, in which he was gently derisive of the popular UFO beliefs. Some UFOs may be such extraterrestrial visitors, it may be postulated, Dr. Condon said, and some writers go so far as to say that they actually are. To discover clear, unambiguous evidence on, the, on this point would be a scientific discovery of the first magnitude, one which I would be quite happy to make. We found no such evidence, and so state in our report. We concluded that it was not worthwhile to carry on a continuing study of UFOs in the manner which has been done so far, that of going out into the field to interview persons who say they have seen something peculiar. The difficulty about using objective means of study lies in the rarity of the apparitions, their short duration, and the tendency of observers not to report their experience until long after it is ended. These difficulties led us to conclude that it is quite unproductive of results of scientific value to study UFOs in the traditional manner. But, contrary to popular belief, we do not rule out all future study. Perhaps we need a national magic agency, pronounced enema, to make a large and expensive study of all these matters, including the future scientific study of UFOs, if any, he concluded. It should also be noted that NICAP, with its weird connections to U.S. intelligence, was working with the CU Boulder team. NICAP split from the project after a 1966 memo written by Robert J. Lowe, an assistant dean at CU Boulder, was leaked. It read, Our study would be conducted almost entirely by non-believers who, though they couldn't possibly prove a negative result, could and probably would add an impressive body of thick evidence that there is no reality to the observations. The trick would be, I think, to describe the project so that to the public it would appear a totally objective study, but to the scientific community would present the image of a group of non-believers trying their best to be objective, but having an almost zero expectation of finding a saucer. In 1968, NICAP left the project, and, as expected, the Condon Committee found that there was no scientific basis for the UFO phenomenon. Case closed. Thank you, Professor. Except, of course, 
that UFO sightings continued to happen, and the culture of the UFO community would just get weirder and more paranoid, which... If you were a member of an intelligence community that wanted to stop the general public from getting interested in UFOs, painting UFO enthusiasts as paranoid weirdos is exactly what you would want, right? It became a bizarre fringe community. If mentioned at all by credible news sources after 1969, it was as a punchline. While fringe publications like the National Enquirer and Weekly World News would continue to cover the subject in depth. During this time, though, things got weird. Stories of contactees and space brothers gave way to stories of abductions and weird medical experiments. These also coincided with the rise of the CIA's MKUltra program, but we don't really think the CIA would abduct and torture U.S. citizens, right? <laughs> Interest in UFOs peaked again in the mid-70s with the spread of the cattle mutilation cases, and in the 80s, things got weird and conspiratorial. The most widely accepted theory during the 70s and 80s was that UFOs were nuts and bolts craft piloted by aliens and that the U.S. government was covering it up. You know, like they did with the Robertson panel and the Condon committee. I mean, I'm not saying that they weren't... Um, or or that they were, I guess. It's just the argument that, like, UFO people are crazy and paranoid because they think the government is covering stuff up when the government set up things like the Robertson panel and the Condon committee to kind of cover up UFOs or, or dissuade people from being into them, um, you know, isn't that much of a stretch, right? Um, in the 80s, you see a resurgence of the Roswell story, like, um, researchers like William Moore really, like, looked into it and wrote a bunch of books, and, um, there was all this stuff about, like, different crashes and, and craft recovery became, like, a big thing. Um, but there were also a bunch of hoaxes, um, particularly MJ-12. Uh, you also have, like, a continue, uh, continuation in sightings, you know, I, in the Rocky Flats episodes, I talked about how in 1984 there was a UFO sighting at Rocky Flats. Um, and in 1985, a guy named Bob White claimed to have not just seen a UFO, but recovered a piece of something that dropped near Grand Junction, Colorado. This is Bob's account for The Express, which is a UK publication. Taking the late Bob White's account at face value, he and a friend found this strange lump of metal near a remote highway in isolated America after an apparent UFO sighting. It was discovered at the location where they claimed to see a multicolored object fall out of a huge ball of light as it ascended upwards into the sky. As a result of the strangeness of what became known as Bob White's UFO artifact, coupled with the description of how he found it, the object has been branded not just the smoking gun evidence for aliens, but the bullet by UFO believers ever since. Mr. White has sworn that in 1985 he was asleep while a companion drove him through remote areas between Grand Junction, Colorado, and the Utah border. It was 2 or 3 a.m. when his friend woke him a second time to say the light in the sky they saw before was getting bigger. His account remained steadfast until his death in 2009. He said, 
The light was about the size of a full harvest moon. As we got closer, it grew larger. When we were a few hundred yards from it, I turned off the ignition and we coasted up close to it. It was huge, the size of a very big barn. I got out of the car for a better look. For some unknown reason, Jan turned on the headlights, and this light went up in the sky as fast as my eyes could follow it. Then I saw another small light, bright orange with a tinge of yellow, white, and blue falling from it. Mr. White said he climbed an incline and headed for where he thought it would have landed. He said, I found a groove in the ground about 18 inches deep and 9 inches wide. I followed the groove, and there it lay. It was still glowing. Not to be a spoil sport, but people have pointed out that the object that Bob White found at this incident bears a striking similarity to the stalagmites that form on foundry grinders. So, you know, take Bob White's account as you will. And of course, I think the crown jewel for people who buy into the alien craft hypothesis comes in 1989 when Bob Lazar who claims to have worked at S4 at Area 51, reveals to TV journalist George Knapp that he was involved in a government program to reverse-engineer UFOs. Lazar makes a bunch of claims and gets a lot of pub publicity. Um, Knapp, kind of a sus guy. Um, he had previously done UFO stories with John Lear, so I think the Knapp-Lazar-Lear stuff is all kind of questionable. Um, and there is also a great blog post on otherhand.org, um, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but it does a pretty good job of debunking Lazar's claims. Um, the long story short is that Area 51 was likely working on creating glowing plasma using lasers as a kind of aircraft countermeasure. This is real technology today that you can look up. Um, so 30 years ago, it's easy to imagine them out there at Area 51 testing this thing, blasting lasers up into the sky and creating these plasma things, um, which would look like UFOs that, of course, Nap could come out and uh, take video of for his news program. In the 1990s, uh, X-Files becomes kind of a cultural phenomenon, right? Um, and I'll tell you, after researching UFO stuff, the plot of X-Files is basically just the crazy nar narrative that Lear and others were pushing during the 80s. Chris Carter literally just ripped off all the UFO Usenets at the time and kind of <laughs> tucked them into the X-Files. However, in 1997, you do have one of the biggest modern UFO flaps, and that is the Phoenix Lights. This is from Wikipedia. Uh, lights of varying descriptions were seen by thousands of people between 7.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in a space of about 300 miles from the Nevada line, through Phoenix to the edge of Tucson. There were two distinct events involved in the incident, a triangular formation of lights seen to pass over the state, and a series of stationary lights seen in the Phoenix area. The United States Air Force identified the second group of lights as flares dropped by A-10 Warthog hog aircraft that were on training exercises at the Barry Goldwater Range in southwest Arizona. Witnesses claimed to have observed a huge carpenter's square-shaped UFO containing five spherical lights or possibly light-emitting engines. Fife Symington, the governor of Arizona at the time, years later said he witnessed this incident, describing the object as being otherworldly. 
The lights were reported to have reappeared in 2007 and 2008, and were attributed to military flares dropped by fighter aircraft at Luke Air Force Base, and flares attached to helium balloons released by a civilian. Let's take a look at some modern Colorado sightings, yeah? So, in 2010, there was another weird incident at F.E. Warren Air Force Base. I found an Atlantic article which described an engineering power failure at F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Wyoming that took 50 nuclear intercontinental ballistic missiles, one-ninth of the U.S. missile stockpile, temporarily offline on Saturday. Hmm... Sounds a lot like the stuff that Bob Hastings reported on. And of course, um, Hastings looked into it, and this is his reporting on the incident. Um, This dramatic story was leaked to Mark Ambinder, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, which published it three days later. The U.S. Air Force then quickly acknowledged the problem, saying that a backup launch system could have performed the task and claiming that the breakdown had lasted a mere 59 minutes. However, the latter statement was untrue, according to two missile technicians stationed at F.E. Warren, who say that the communications issue, while intermittent, actually persisted over several hours. Significantly, these same individuals report sightings by numerous teams of an enormous cigar-shaped craft that maneuvered high above the missile field on the day of the disruption. The huge UFO appeared similar to a World War I German Zeppelin, but had no passenger gondola or advertising on its hull, as would a commercial blimp. The confidential Air Force sources also report that their squadron commander has warned witnesses not to talk to journalists or researchers about the things they may or may not have seen in the sky and has threatened severe penalties for anyone violating security. Consequently, these persons must remain anonymous at this time. The disquieting information was provided to noted researcher and author Robert Hastings, who, over the past seven months, has interviewed law enforcement and civilian eyewitnesses to ongoing UFA. UFO activity near F.E. Warren's ICBM sites between September 2010 and April 2011. Again, not to poo-poo anyone's accounts, but it does maybe bear mentioning that in 2016, the Air Force did bust a bunch of airmen at F.E. Warren for using LSD on duty. Um, Apparently, it had been an ongoing thing. You know, you're out there in the middle of a prairie at an ICBM location and you're a security guy and you got nothing to do, why not, you know, trip balls during your eight-hour shift? Um, And this doesn't necessarily negate the 2010 incident where the nukes went down. You know, I mean, that the nukes did go down in 2010. Um, The question about the UFO sightings and and Hastings did use anonymous sources. So, you know, it raises some questions and, and, you know, maybe they were all just like tripping balls. I don't know. One type of UFO phenomenon that we see a lot in Colorado are these weird orbs that appear and disappear, and they appear in triangular formation or they'll form a line. I would say very similar to the Phoenix Lights, but on like a smaller scale. They often get written off as flares, especially here in Colorado Springs because we're so close to Fort Carson. But, you know, I was in the Army. I'm very familiar with the flares that are used on Fort Carson. Um, And these objects, they don't move like flares. They don't appear in locations of the sky in Colorado Springs where Fort Carson would be 
firing off flares. Um, I've included a video of one of these sightings in the show notes, so you can check it out yourself and uh, make your own decision. Um, But that video was taken June 4th in Colorado Springs, right before the Waldo Canyon fire. And KRDO News Channel 13 here in Colorado Springs also apparently caught a UFO during their coverage of the Waldo Canyon fire. There's a link to the YouTube video in the show notes. I haven't seen the original version of this. Um, the, the YouTube is recorded off of a TV by someone's phone. Um, so it might have been doctored with. It might not be an actual UFO, you know. As with everything paranormal, kind of take it with a grain of salt. Um, But I think it's interesting that these two sightings kind of happened around the Waldo Canyon fire because Keel did specifically mention um, the connection between uh, fire and like UFO sightings, um, particularly in kind of like an occult way. Um, So this is from Operation Trojan Horse. The early occultists understood, at least partially, that energy was key to the whole. Because fire has always been a basic source of energy, many of their rites centered around candle flames and bonfires. Early religious rites involved the offering of sacrifices by fire to the unseen gods. In biblical times, animals were consigned to the flames as offerings. In other cultures, human beings were sacrificed on pyres. Essentially, fire breaks down the molecules of the substance being burned, freeing some of that energy contained therein and producing intense infrared radiation. One well-known, heavily documented type of poltergeist, a noisy ghost, manifestation produces mysterious fires. Haunted houses often burn to the ground eventually. Fires of undetermined origin erupt suddenly throughout UFO flap areas. Many pyromaniacs set fires because a voice in their head told them to do so. Although I have had neither the means nor the time to study adequately and confirm this fire factor, my experiences in flap areas have led me to believe that the energies of these mysterious conflagrations are being utilized by the UFO phenomenon. There may be a definite relationship between the number of fires and the numbers of UFOs seen in a specific sector. A community suddenly beset with 15 or 20 major fires within the short span of a week or two seems to produce more UFO sightings in that same period than a place with no fires. Either the UFOs are somehow indirectly causing these fires, or they are directly feasting upon the energies produced by the flames. It'll be interesting to see if there are any uh, UFO sightings from uh, the Marshall Fire that we had recently here. Um, So that took place in, in June 2012, and then in November 2012, there was this really weird report caught by Fox 31 in Denver. Strange objects caught on camera flying over the city, and nobody can explain it. We first learned about these sightings when a metro area man, who does not want to be identified, brought us his home video. He captured the images on his digital camera from a hilltop in Federal Heights, looking south toward downtown. He said the flying objects appear around noon or 1 p.m. at least a couple of times a week. The strangest part is they are flying too fast to see with the naked eye, but when we slowed down the video, several UFOs appear. We altered the color contrast to make it easier to see. You can take a look for yourself by watching the video clip. I couldn't find the video clip on the website anymore since it was from 2012, just FYI. 
We wanted to verify the video we saw was legitimate and not doctored in any way, so our photojournalist set up his camera in the same spot and shot a video from just before noon until just after 1pm. He also captured something unexplained on video. Aviation expert Steve Cowell is a former commercial pilot, instructor, and FAA accident prevention counselor. He thought he would have a logical explanation until he watched the video. That is not an airplane, that is not a helicopter, those are not birds, I can't identify it, he said. He also told us the objects are not insects. He said he knows of no aircraft that flies as fast. He did tell us there is one possibility. Perhaps there's some sort of debris that is being raised up by some of the atmospheric winds. But in his professional opinion, as it fits the description, it's an unidentified flying object. The FAA tracks all air traffic in Colorado and across the country. The FAA sent us a statement that says, We've checked with air traffic control and no one has had any reports of the activity you described, nor have any of our employees observed anything of this nature either visually or on their radar displays. The North American Aerospace Defense Command is located in Colorado Springs. It keeps an eye on the skies in case of an air attack against the United States. NORAD sent us this statement. Our command center reviewed their records and they did not have any noted air activity in the Denver area during the times you indicated. The man who brought the video to our attention believes the UFOs are launching and landing near 56th Avenue and Clay Street in Denver. A map shows only homes in the area. So are they UFOs? A secret military test? Floating debris? The answer is anything but clear. Then, on October 4th, 2014, in Breckenridge, Colorado of all places, uh, there was a pretty massive UFO flap. It was covered by Matt Renault of Nine News. Um, I'll link the YouTube video in the show notes, but here's the audio. Three white dots I'll show you that were flying over a Breckenridge behind me late this morning looked as if they were hovering right over Baldy Mountain behind me. And while no one from the Breckenridge Police Department or Sheriff's Departments wanted to talk about the objects on camera, several people at those organizations saw them and others around town reported the strange things flying over the skies of Breckenridge, sending police out to investigate these shiny white tiny dots in the sky. Some people off camera said they saw them form triangles and a line. On our camera, it seemed as if they didn't move at all. In fact, it took some help for most people to even see them. Very top of the trees, and then just go to the left in the blue sky. There's all those kind of wispy clouds. Yeah. There's a white dot right in the, 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 near the edge of the wispy the FAA didn't have a comment on what these dots could be, nor had said they're not tracking any abnormalities at this time. But yesterday, a TV station in Utah reported very similar white dots appearing in the sky over Utah. The objects were visible for about three hours. They showed up best when the sun was reflecting off of them. Mark, we also called the Strategic Command as well, U.S. Strategic Command. They said they aren't tracking anything, but they typically track those objects that come in from outer space and then enter orbit. They believe whatever these were were probably below their range of tracking. And not drones, you don't think, Matt? I don't think they were drones. And the folks that I talked to said they didn't look like weather balloons because at times, at times they would just sit there for five or six minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes without moving an inch on our view screen in the camera and then you would see a flash of light and they would they would take off 
across the edge of the mountain ridge behind me. So it didn't appear to be drones. It didn't appear to be weather balloons. Truly unidentified flying objects in the skies over Breckenridge today. All right, Matt Renew, if you should suddenly disappear, we have a clue. Matt Renew reporting live from Summit County. <laughs> I did some searching on this, and there were similar sightings in Utah after a meteor lit up the Salt Lake City skyline early the morning of October 2nd, 2014. Skeptics have pointed out that the white objects might have been Google balloons, which were being launched at the time, and they were like internet balloons or something. Um, but I don't know. Uh, the reporter from Nine News seemed genuinely shook by the things that he was seeing there, and people reported them moving in ways that balloons genu genuinely don't. Um, and I guess it's also worth noting that during this time in 2014, um, the U.S. Navy was experiencing their uh, encounters with Tic Tacs in training areas and near aircraft carriers. Um, so who knows? <laughs> In January of 2020, there was a drone flap after mysterious drones were spotted in Nebraska and eastern Colorado. This is the audio from a segment by Fox 31 in Denver, which covered some drone sightings in the Denver metro area. Four or five feet, and just saw blinking light. This mystery in the sky is no longer just one hovering over the eastern plains. Whenever I saw them, that was immediately what I thought. I thought, those are the drones. I mean... It was the bright. The lights were so bright on both Friday and Saturday. It was probably right there. One Castle Rock resident after another. They were just lower than an airplane typically would be. Reported seeing mysterious aircraft just above their backyards. It's interesting. Somebody's looking at something. Brian Toomey sent the problem solvers this video of the aircraft. Here you can kind of see the flashing lights and the shape of it. He saw a total of three drones, all very large in size. I've heard six foot. Um, I felt like it was a little bit bigger than that. And about 11 miles away. Right through here where that cloud is, coming in this way, came out and kind of circled right here and shot back out that way. Scott Lucazzi saw them too, but four hours yeah. later. Just happened to come out, let the dog out, and they just came in from this way, like a V formation, and shot back out that way. Jim and Patty Thews were driving home from dinner. And you could see them. There were four of them, just perfectly spaced. All of these Castle Rock residents say the drones were large, but clearly not airplanes or helicopters. And all of them are a bit unnerved by what they saw. I have no idea. I try not to think about it. By the mystery. Yeah, that's what kind of caught me off guard. Hovering above their homes. I don't understand why they don't want the public to know. The fact that um, no one's jumping on it from the government, uh, the FAA doesn't seem concerned. I thought, it's got to be the government. A lot of those uh, drones sighted in Castle Rock tonight. Several other viewers uh, reported seeing them over the Parker area. And we've also heard from a few viewers up in Fort Collins who they've seen them in those parts of the city, or have seen them over parts of that city in recent days. Again, those drones estimated to be anywhere from 4 to 10 feet in length. Kagan Harsha, Fox 31. The Drive, an aviation blog, did a lot of in-depth reporting on these sightings. The drones were investigated by the FAA, which actually used the term UFO, and local law enforcement. It's worth noting that northeastern Colorado and Nebraska are both within droning distance of F.E. Warren Air Force Base.
This is from The Drive. Much initial speculation about the strange aerial activity centered on the military, in part because some early drone sightings were only about 30 miles from ICBM missile fields controlled by the 90th Missile Wing of F.E. Warren Air Force Base. In public statements at the time, an F.E. Warren spokesman denied having any role in the sightings. Internal emails obtained by SCU's Douglas Johnson and reported by The War Zone on February 24, 2020, confirmed that officers at the base were mystified by the drone reports. My favorite aspect of the 2020 drone flap was the fact that it upset then U.S. Senator from Colorado Cory Gardner. This is also from The Drive. The documents Johnson obtained revealed a high level of interest in the investigation on the part of U.S. Senators Cory Gardner, a Colorado Republican, and Deb Fisher, another Republican from Nebraska. On December 30, Lisa Papier, director of the Office of National Security Programs and Incident Response, a part of the Office of Security and Hazardous Material Safety, or ASH, emailed Bumberger that the drone issue is really ratcheting up. Some of the drones flew near Senator Gardner's house in Yuma County, Colorado. Both Gardner and Fisher made public statements expressing their concerns during the height of the drone flap. I've been in contact with the FAA, and I'm encouraged that they've launched a full investigation to learn the source and purpose of the drones, Gardner said in a December 31 press release. I will continue to closely monitor the situation. On the same day, an FAA congressional relations officer emailed the FAA chief of staff, that Gardner's office was hearing from the local farm bureau that the drones have been disturbing cattle operations and may have caused injuries and that the drones are flying closely to some of the general aviation airports in the area. They may elevate this to a call from the senator just to the administrator, given the level of concern in the area. They are also just concerned that it's taking this long to identify such a large number of drones. On January 8, 2020, Gardner stated, I think this shows a significant gap in our understanding and national security understanding of the threat drones pose. If we can't find out who they are, how they are being controlled, who is controlling them, what is to keep a nation like Iran or North Korea from looking at this instance and saying, boy, now we should come out and do the same thing with cameras and sensor equipment to find out the kinds of things that would help with international security. So I think it's a concern. The senator's concerns are not unfounded. The threat of that lower-end drones pose to national security is something the war zone has been highlighting for years. <clears throat> there still hasn't been a full explanation for what the drones were, why they appeared, or what they were doing. Like a lot of the weird stuff that we see here, people just kind of forgot about it. On March 25th, 2020, two months after the drone flap, I actually covered a UFO flap here in Colorado Springs. Maybe not a full-on flap, like a mini flap, uh, but there was definitely a mass sighting. And it coincided with a bunch of other weird events, which, in my mind, has given the whole thing a very uh, Keel-esque kind of vibe. The weird stuff actually started on March 23rd in Grand Junction, when residents complained of unusually loud jet noise. One Facebook user said, Anyone else hear all those military jets just now? What the heck is happening? That never happens around here, especially this late. One person responded, Yeah, there were four. My husband is an Air Force vet. He said they were chasing something.
Local news the next day reported it as a routine fueling operation involving three F-18s. On March 24th, a Colorado Springs resident reported an unusual sighting and made a weirdly detailed drawing, which again will be on Twitter or Instagram. <clears throat> if I remember correctly, I found these drawings on Twitter searching like UFO Colorado Springs. Um, again, trying to find like other corroborating witnesses for the March 25th incident. Um, but then... On March 25th, Colorado Springs resident Brian Easton had a sighting. Here is what he told me about what he saw. I was driving up north on Academy and Platt. It was dusk and I looked left over the town, and I noticed above the mountains I saw what I thought were like tower lights at first, but there aren't any towers there. What I remember really seeing in detail is something between 15 to 20 objects that ranged in color from gray to some of them that had like blinking white lights and what I thought were red lights. That's why I thought they might have been tower lights. And they were moving in a frenetic, almost figure eight, like a pair of binoculars. There was some order to it, but then there was some frenetic like swarm activity to a few of them. It was like a video game in the air. I was like, what's going on? And then all of a sudden, the figure eight flattened out and they shot ridiculously fast directly over me out east and were gone. For a second, I couldn't tell if they had actually done that or if they had just disappeared where they were. I'd say the whole thing lasted maybe 12, 15 seconds. Brian posted his sighting on Facebook and people commented who had made similar sightings that day. Brian was the only one who would speak to me on record about the event, but I can definitely tell you that at least two other people in Colorado Springs saw the same thing that day. Additionally, there is a YouTube account that uses automated cameras to collect sky footage from their backyard, and they captured footage of weird objects in the sky on March 25th. Uh, link in the show notes if you're interested. Tragically, Brian would pass away unexpectedly in May. He was a fixture of the local music scene in Colorado Springs, and he is missed by a lot of people. When I think about Brian's sighting, I think about John Keel. He hypothesized that Mothman was a kind of harbinger of doom, that his appearance presaged the 1967 collapse of the Silver Bridge, which killed 46 people. We had a batch of sightings before and during the Waldo Canyon fire. We had the weird drone flap right before the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Maybe it's best that I've never seen a UFO. Mysterious shade that took its far Oh, what it was Incarnation Three stars Delivering signs and dusting from their eyes I've spoken to a lot of people about their sightings. Haley Pretzman, host of the horror comedy Podcast, which explores spooky experiences and sometimes UFOs, witnessed a UFO in Pueblo in 2017. It was three lights, and they were in a line, equidistant to each other, and they were close, like floor, four blocks away, she explains. It didn't seem to be terribly far. We went towards it, and as we were getting closer, it formed a triangle shape. At this point, I pulled out my phone to take pictures of it, and as I was watching it, it started to glow. There were all these little lights and colors, and they were twinkling, and it didn't look like anything. 
there's nothing I could compare it to. I talked to folks here in Colorado Springs who are part of a CE5 group, um, which is like Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. So, you know, like Close Encounters 1 through 4. Well, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind is when um, people like meditate and try to psychically make contact with UFOs. This approach has its roots in remote viewing and kind of aligns with the Kiel school of thought, but... CE5 is the project of Dr. Stephen Greer, who again, like everyone in the UFO sphere, is kind of controversial. Um, the CE5 group also, like, it hosts a monthly, like, UFO meetup here in Colorado Springs. I've attended a couple of those meetings, and they were definitely interesting. I talked to a guy from Canyon City last year who saw a UFO. Looking into the Canyon City case got me in touch with a guy who is part of Share International, which is that George Adamski UFO cult thing. It's it's not really a cult, I guess, but um, it's kind of similar to CE5 in that they use meditation to contact the Space Brothers, but it focuses on the coming of Maitreya, who is an ascended master who will lead humanity to the next stage of evolution. They're really into like crop circle phenomena and the connection between like UFOs and nuclear weapons and, and nuclear power plants and stuff. Um, the guy I talked to gave me some like numerological prayers for longevity and health. And he used dowsing rods to measure my energy levels, which was a first for me. The truth as they say, is out there. I'm not sure what the true natures of UFOs are exactly, but I sure would like to find out. If you've had a UFO experience, I would love to hear about it. Feel free to drop me a line at westernfringe at protonmail.com. But now I've got to get going. Next week, I'll be in my hometown of Colorado Springs, and we're going to get D-U-M-B-A-F. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe or tell a friend or whatever it is you do with podcasts. Um, you can connect with us on Twitter at, at Western Fringe, W-S-T-R-N Fringe, or drop us a line at westernfringe at protonmail.com. This episode was brought to you by Odds and Ends Emporium, a woman-owned toy and gift shop located at the Ivy Wild School in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Visit oddsandendsemporium.com to see their wide selection of unique toys and gifts. Until next time. <laughs>